0: We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week.
1: Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio is Gavin Phipps. Yeah, good evening. And also in studio with us today is Ross Feingold of DC International Advisory. Ross. Good evening. On the show today, well, of course, uh, we'll be discussing the fallout from this month's deadly earthquake that struck Tainan, uh, what's responsible for the collapse of the Weiguan Jinlok building, and what is the response likely to be now that the disaster phase is over. And we'll also be talking about the new legislative session that kicked off today. That's ushering in a new era of DPP-led legislative politics here in Taiwan. But first... Taiwan found itself in the lead paragraphs of newspapers around the world once again this week. Uh, So how did it get there this time? Well, uh, let's see, the economy's not doing so well, so it uh, can't be a tech thing. It just had a disaster, so uh, that must be the South China Sea. That's the other way that Taiwan gets into lead paragraphs. Uh, And I'll let Gavin set the record straight in just a second, but I'm going to set it up the same way that all these newspapers set it up this week they reported that taiwan's defense ministry broke the news earlier this week that the chinese military has deployed an air defense missile system on woody island that woody island of course is a part of the parasol chain in the south china sea the u.s has condemned the move warning that it will lead to a military buildup in the region and increase tensions Uh, so a lot of concern stoked around the world Uh, gavin of course uh, Taiwan and China and Vietnam, for that matter, uh, claim part of that chain. Uh, they all claim
2: the Woody Islands, in fact.
1: They, Yeah, all claim the Woody Islands. Which needs a new name. Which needs a new name. Uh, set the record straight. Taiwan, were they uh, on this case? Were they the ones to crack it? Apparently not, not if you believe Fox
2: News in the United States, who claim that they broke the story after they reported that satellite images dating from 14th of February of this year, provided by a company called ImageSat International NV, showed two batteries of eight surface-to-air missiles on Woody Island. Of course, Woody Island, Chinese forces are on Woody Island in the Paracels. These were HQ-9 SAM missiles, if you want the actual type of missiles they are.
1: For folks keeping track at home. All right, so that uh, gives us a sense of the actual incident itself. Uh, the, the, I think the, the the main international concern being that this is going to kind of tip off a regional arms race. Uh, all Everybody with their various properties and installations in the region are going to increase their own militarization as a response. Uh, up to now, what has Taiwan's response been? Taiwan's response has been a statement which simply said...
2: We are continuing to monitor the situation in the South China Sea following the release of the satellite images and the military has gathered information about the deployment and is closely watching further developments and all parties concerned in the South China Sea dispute should work together for peace and stability in the region and avoid any unilateral action that could accelerate tensions.
1: So basically the form letter.
2: Well, basically, while this story had got big headlines all over the world, in Taiwan,
3: it's just like, OK, yet again. Well, we I, it, it's, it's a very tough issue for the incoming government ha- how to respond to this because uh, do you have some kind of political response? Is there some kind of military response, uh, w- which is probably unlikely uh, given limited military resources that Taiwan has to deploy to such a far distance? Uh, Where do you walk away from the sovereignty claim?
2: Well, that's the issue. The sovereignty claim is, of course, the issue because Taiwan's – the ROC, Republic of China's claims to islands in the South China Sea are – Enmeshed,
3: intertwined. Inextricably linked to China's. Right. So this uh, is what the uh, the new government will struggle with because they want to get away from a lot of the ROC historical baggage. Exactly. But
2: if it can't – obviously the current government, the Ma administration, because it's still in power, can't say anything because if it criticizes Beijing for doing this, then it's basically criticizing itself for doing the same thing on islands claimed by the ROC. Another interesting thing about these missiles put there by the Chinese is – One analyst I spoke with said it's not aimed at Taiwan at all. It has nothing to do with Taiwan. It's aimed at, A, deterring the Americans from getting a bit umphy and uppity in the region.
1: Because, of course, they're pointing out, you know, you have all these ships going close to our islands. You have all these flights through this region.
2: But this guy, Eric Schur, who's a well-known defense analyst, and he appears on television here in Taiwan a lot, he said it's Vietnam. China Mm. did this to deter Vietnam because, of course, like I said earlier, Vietnam claims... Woody Island in the Paracels, Mm -hmm. and Eric told me that Vietnam is currently the only country that poses a military threat to China in the South China Sea due to its recent purchase of high advanced weapons systems. And it, Vietnam is the only country with a large enough military force capable of removing Chinese forces from that area in the South China Sea currently.
3: Well, you know, Gavin, uh, people tend to think of these disputes in the South China Sea as a somewhat monolithic dispute. You know, it's just one big group, even though some of the island chains have different names. But actually, some of the situations, as we know, are, are distinguished. For example, Taiwan's uh, uh, current control over Taiping Island has actually been going on for, for a number of decades, and Taiwan has been developing that island uh, with various kinds of infrastructure. And the same thing applies to w- Woody Island, where Beijing has controlled this island since the mid-50s. Oh, prior to that, the French and the Vietnamese subsequently did control it, which is why Vietnam has, has a plausible claim as well. But, but the key thing here is that this particular island, unlike some of the other islands and, and reefs and shoals that are throughout the South china Sea it, it is an island where China has had personnel and has been building various kinds of infrastructure uh, since the mid 1950s uh, One could take a take a view that putting defensive uh, equipment there is just a logical step to protecting their claim and it 's frankly not that unusual given the tensions. In the region. Now, I don't say that to defend China's claim per se, but it, it's not completely unreasonable that they would put military resources on an island that is in an area that's under dispute. And also, the, the military analyst, Eric Scher, I was talking about,
2: he, he basically told me, that he, is, he's from Taiwan, this guy, he basically said to me, well, Beijing has every right to put whatever it wants on that island.
1: Right. And that's, uh, that's of course, the view that China is taking that they've made in their official statements. Uh, The U.S. response that we've been hearing uh, from John Kerry, Secretary of State Kerry, uh, has been that China has made commitments not to militarize the region, and this would seem to go counter to those commitments. So that's the perspective coming from the U.S. Well, it's
3: unfortunate that China gave Kerry a woody this week. That's why the island needs to be changed. They've got a different name for that <laughs> one. have got to have a different
2: name for that
1: island. All right. We'll just, take, uh, we'll just let folks take that how they will and move on to uh, our next very quick segment. Uh, before we get to domestic politics, uh, well, I think maybe the East China Sea uh, has been feeling a bit neglected recently. Uh, maybe this week uh, was the last straw because they also burst back into the national conversation in Taiwan. Uh, and that happened after some interesting comments on the East China China sea sovereignty of some islands over there appeared in a recently released book from A1 Li Donghui. Gavin, uh, tell us about those comments.
2: Yes, this is a book that was this is a book that he published in 2014 in Japanese, the name of which was called Li Donghui's Words for Japan. It was published earlier this week in Chinese, with the title "Remaining Life: My Life Journey and the Road of Taiwan's Democracy." Now, in this book, which is sort of a memoir, the 93-year-old former head of state said, basically, the Diaoyutai Islands, or the name they're called in Japan, which I won't say because, of course, we're in Taiwan and we have to call them Diaoyutai Islands, don't belong to Taiwan. They belong to Japan. Well, this, needless to say, irked quite a lot of people, including the fishermen who fished there for a living and, of course, the KMT government. He also dissed the DPP. Yeah. Because he turned round in this book and said, Premier Yoshi-kun's decision to include the islands under the administration of Chung Township in Ilan County,
3: well, there is nothing more stupid than this. Quite a nice turn of phrase. Well, again, this is something that the incoming government Of uh, president-elect Tsai will struggle with and it's whether or not to maintain the historical claims of the ROC to islands whether it's in the East China Sea or the South China Sea. The interesting thing about this is even if we, we perceive the DPP as a party that most identifies with Taiwan's main island but clearly the public view in Taiwan including fishermen uh is that these islands belong to Taiwan? Whether you perceive Taiwan as a country called Taiwan or you perceive it as a country called the ROC, but the public view is clearly that these these islands belong to us. And even a party that wants to move Taiwan away from the ROC nomenclature and, and historical identification will want to maintain. Will be forced, frankly, to maintain these claims. Right. So this is perhaps
1: just the. Uh latest in what will maybe be a a long series of controversial statements from Mr. Li Donghui. Of course, we had some of these last year as well. Uh, And uh, in this case, I think it it absolutely does just raise a lot of the same issues that we talked about in the South China Sea. Uh, So we will have to wait and see how the DPP sorts all of that out, which brings us nice, squarely, right back into domestic politics and in this case, when we say the word politics, we're not just talking about campaigning. We are talking about real governing, actual governing. We're finally off the campaign trail because the new DPP-led legislature kicked off its turn today. Uh, and in some ways, it's uh, kind of an historic moment. We've got the first ever DPP majority legislature in Taiwan's history. But complicating things, as we've discussed before, is the fact that the KMT-led executive is... Still sticking around. Uh, So this gets complicated because on the one hand, the DPP has forwarded its list of priority bills that it wants to get to work on. Meanwhile, though, the mod-pointed cabinet has put forward its own list of priority bills. Uh, So we've got this awkward little mismatch going on here. Uh, We've discussed this before. Uh, But now this odd couple has finally taken the plunge and moved in together. So, uh, Gavin, uh, tell us about these two different sets of proposals.
2: Well, there's quite a lot of priority bills, actually. The DPP has 30 of these priority bills. And basically, whatever the KMT puts through is not going to get listened to, basically. So there's only one thing to focus on, and that's the DPP priority bills, because they have the majority... The KMT basically aren't going to get a show in anymore. Whatever the cabinet says, the cabinet could jump up and down and gay, We're going to give everyone party hats and streamers and have a good old party. Right. The chances are... The DPP won't agree with it anyway, whether they want a party or not.
3: Well, let's not forget something, uh, Gavin, which is the DPP had the opportunity to form the cabinet and they declined. I know. They declined for other reasons, though. And we're
2: talking about the legislature now. But
3: the the president offered... The DPP the chance to form the cabinet yeah. following the election. Yeah. They declined.
2: They declined, but that's neither here nor there. Well, well, I disagree. But I, I, I disagree they because they the it. cabinet
3: the cabinet could have been one appointed by the DPP, which would have cooperated better with a DPP legislature. They declined, and now we have two two competing sets of bills being proposed. And so,
1: right, so that does lead to the controversy of this week, uh, of which course, is some of
2: these bills. Sorry, Keith, are quite controversial because they are clashing heads on a transition bill. Right, and the tra- that's the main that's, line of criticism that's, from the yeah, KMT that's, this week. Because, of course, they're arguing that the DPP only wants to focus on the transition bill and not focus on any other bills. And, and course, when we
1: talk about the transition bill, what we're talking about is cleaning up this messy issue of the mismatch between the executive and the legislature, not right. having that four-month gap.
2: And the handover of power, basically. Exactly. Okay, which is another stupid thing when you think about it, Ross, and you're going to agree with me here. They've had four years to talk about this one, and yeah. no one's actually done it, of course. It, 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 <laughs> absolutely,
3: yeah, it, it, the only thing we could say in, in, in defense of how we landed where we are is that it, it was a very long time coming to harmonize the terms or get close to harmonizing the terms of the legislative UN and the president, right? The LY used to be a three-year term. The election year was not the same as the president um, because the, the terms were different lengths. We finally were able to harmonize the election day to be the same, But but these things take a long time to revise – applicable laws, laws that were not written simultaneously. Uh, some things are bound by the Constitution. Some things are are within the flexibility of the Central Election Commission to determine, such as election days. So the, the, it, it's partially understandable how we wound up where we are. Uh, that does not necessarily excuse the fact that uh, people did not foresee. In uh, fact, as you said, we knew this was coming. Uh, So from that perspective, it's inexcusable. And right. And so this that's what the DPP is saying
1: is that that's going to be one of their highest priorities is sorting that all out. Uh, The KMT, meanwhile, is saying, well, why aren't we focusing on this earthquake and earthquake prevention? That's what they're saying
3: should be at the top of the heap. Well, there's a lot of logic to that because what what do you do? You're going to pass a a transition bill uh, on February 25th or so uh, to apply to the next six or seven weeks? uh, What good is that, right? I mean, it'll be useful for the next time, maybe, um, but it's not really useful for this transition yeah yeah
2: so the, i mean that's that, that's the cabinet in fact has passed a list of twenty seven bills it's calling priority mm-hmm. well the d p p basically is pushing for thirty of these bills mm-hmm. now course, as you said, Ross the cabinet's lead bill is the disaster prevention law basically mm-hmm. that's what for. and of course the cabinet is also looking for lawmakers to pass the cross trade mm-hmm. oversight agreement law mm-hmm.
3: well, well, any law that bans earthquakes, I think should be passed as a matter of priority. So that (laughs) – they should be outlawed. They should – or at least give them a fine.
1: At the bare minimum, give them a fine.
2: Yeah. Uh, But, of course, the Cross-Strait Agreement Supervisory Act, as it's being called by some people, is another one. Like I said, the cabinet wants to push it, but the DPP is
3: moving that to the back burner. Well, do we we think that the DPP wants to pass that bill at any point in the near future? Or do they want to not move it so that the – cross trade agreements could continue to be in the status they've been for the last – now it's going to be two years. Mm. This is the trading goods agreement you're talking about. Well, well, both, right? Both. The services, the services. And, 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 yeah. the, and the trading goods. So,
1: Well, it, it would be a little bit impractical at the moment to uh, pass through their version of a bill that's not going to be very readily enacted by the executive branch. If they pass through a version that you know, they find acceptable – uh, I, I'm not sure if Simon Jong is going to be very eager to actually enact that.
3: Well, well, the, uh, under the the system, if if a bill passes the legislature, uh, the president all but has to put his assent to it. Yeah. Uh, but by the time it passes and 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 the president puts his, his seal on it, uh, we, again, we're going to be just a few weeks out from the transfer of power. So I, I think with regard to the cross rate monitoring mechanism bill, the the, the bigger question. It's not really the content of the bill. It's whether or not the incoming government wants to implement the services agreement and finish and then implement the trade and goods agreement. So that's a bigger question than just the content of the monitoring bill.
2: Yeah, Some of these other DPP priority bills include one for a nuclear-free homeland plus laws regarding nuclear waste disposal – <clears throat> the nuclear-free homeland's questionable, but of course, I think we can all agree on it's a good idea to deal with your nuclear waste properly and don't just leave it out for the garbage men to pick up. The DPP is also <laughs> looking for laws to beef up financial. That doesn't go into
1: the plastic section. That no, it doesn't, doesn't go into the plastic no. <clears throat> You don't oh. put that
2: in your battery section or the plastic section. As got a special plastic bag. Oh,
1: whoops! It easy. Yeah.
2: Anyway, the DPP is also looking to beef up financial resources for long-term senior care. It's also looking to end secret ballots during the election of local council speakers. See, there's a whole bunch of laws here that are going to go through. Some, obviously, are considered could wait, basically. Right. Whereas others, like dealings with China and laws regarding cross-strait trade agreements, are probably slightly more important than um, arguing the toss over secret ballots for local council speakers.
3: (laughs) I'm not sure why that's in the urgent list. Well, it's something that has led to corruption in the past, in the selection of um, local council speakers at various levels of government in Taiwan. So to the extent that President-elect Tsai has committed to cleaning up politics is something she talks about frequently, then I guess you have to start somewhere and they've decided to start with local government.
2: Yes, of course. The KMT, the cabinet, the KMT, is also looking to pass laws, also its own legislative reform bills, and they want to regulate political parties and a law addressing party assets.
1: Mm. So those are some of those bills that you're saying are kind of irrelevant at this
3: point. Well,
2: they're kind of irrelevant at this point because the KMT could jump up and down and bust and walk out
3: and the laws are still going to get passed. And is anyone talking about bills that will help uh, economic growth or job creation? Not at the moment, no. Well, that's unfortunate given the uh, economic data is not looking very positive recently and going forward. The forecasts are not looking good.
1: (sighs) All right. Well, we're going to have to wrap up this first half on something of a bleak note. But uh, that does give you a sense of uh, some of the confusion that's being caused by... Uh, I, I, you know, I would almost, uh, compare the situation to, you know, you go to a new apartment, you're just moving in and you realize that the old tenant is still there hanging out on the couch. And oh, by the way, they're going to be there for another couple of months. So I I think
3: we should also check what's inside the walls, but we could talk about that more in the earthquake session. (laughs) (laughs) That will be uh,
1: an important thing to talk about in the earthquake session, Uh, which by the way, we're going to be coming up to in the next Half. Uh, So we're rounding out the first half here, but the entire uh, second half of the show is going to be dedicated to uh, taking a look at out the fallout from uh, the earthquake two weeks ago. So do stay tuned for that when we come back to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Minconi, joined by Gavin Phipps and Ross Feingold. Yesterday, rescue workers identified what they believe to be the final victim of the Weiguan Jinlong residential building collapse, that is, the deadliest building collapse from the February 6th earthquake. The discovery brings the final death toll at the Weiguan site to 115, and the total death toll from the quake overall to 117. So we are now firmly out of the immediate disaster response phase, but big questions still hang over the disaster itself as to just who exactly is to blame and what's left to be done for Taiwan to prevent a repeat of what we saw here when the next quake hits. Uh, Now, this was more a disaster for southern Taiwan than it was for northern Taiwan, so to get the perspective from the south, uh, we have our ICRT southern correspondent, Michael Smith, on the line. Michael, thanks for being here.
0: Hey, not a problem. The quake actually hit in Kaohsiung County, uh, I mean Kaohsiung City now, It's called Mainong District, and it's very far north of, like, the downtown area of Kaohsiung. It would take you an hour, maybe even two, to get up there. And it's a mountainous area. And what happened was it hit there, but then spread its waves in the Janan Plain. And this is the largest plain that Taiwan has. And uh, before the arrival of the Han immigrants uh, many centuries ago, most aboriginal tribes in the area lived there. It stretches all the way up from, like... The Jai area, even further up to Yunlin and parts of Jianghua and all the way down to Kaohsiung. It's a big, flat area. And this area, the soil there is, because it's flat and because it's a plain, it just rippled through the soil. And the building in Yongkang, which is a district of Tainan, that is uh, sort of um, to the uh, east of the, uh, of, of the city and relatively close to Meinong uh, as the crow flies, was most deeply affected, and the building, as we all know, uh, collapsed. So not only did that happen, but uh, also several people were killed by falling debris in a different part of the city, as well as a lot of destruction uh, at monuments and temples and uh, other things in Tainan. Kaohsiung City itself did not see a whole lot of damage, but there was at least one building where the downstairs area, um, and this is a building where people has, have just moved into, they just purchased their apartments there, the bottom area sort of collapsed and crumbled, and the people today uh, are demanding that the uh, owners return their money. You know, they won't want to move out, but that's going to be a, a hard sell.
1: Right, and so that's kind of the uh, immediate what the disaster looked like uh, but uh, now that we're about two weeks into it, how, how is uh, how are the local governments uh, looking? Uh, I, I saw a poll out recently that uh, showed that uh, William Lai came out of this with fairly high uh, favorability ratings. Uh, tell us a little bit about what's behind that.
0: Yes, the mayor of Tainan is, um, uh, I think, uh, pretty much anyone would say it's fair to say that he has aspirations for higher office at some point in his career. And this was uh, quite a test for him, and it seems that he passed it, according to uh, local people's assessment, with flying colors. He got 88% approval rating amongst uh, Tainan residents over his handling of the quake. And if you watched him over those days that he was there, he really did manage to exude, and I can't tell you if it was uh, true or if it's phony, but he did manage to give the Feeling of really understanding the suffering that the people were going through, he essentially stayed awake for like four or five days straight and just walked around the the site and comforted people and spoke to the media and he he just he got it right. Uh, Whether whether it's real or not, I I can't say. But from a a media perspective, he he did a a, a quite an awesome job, and at least eighty eight percent of residents in the city agree with that. Moving on to uh, the next stage, as you were talking about earlier, what they need to do now, and the mayor of Tainan and the mayor of Kaohsiung have both agreed to begin this immediately, they're going to start checking all the buildings. There's been a subsidy given by the central government. I think they said 8,000 NT for smaller buildings and for bigger buildings. It could be up to 300,000. I have to check the exact numbers. But they're going to start checking all of the older buildings that uh, were constructed before Perhaps certain safety uh, standards were put into place. And we're going to have to see whether or not uh, buildings need to be torn down. We know that at least 85 buildings in the city of Tainan are no longer habitable and will need to be uh, torn down. And then there's at least 100, if not more, other buildings that are going to have to be reinforced and uh, uh, re-fixed uh, uh, before people can move back in. So there's a lot of rebuilding and rechecking that needs to be done now.
1: Right, and kind of sticking with uh, that question of what exactly is to blame, what should be done now, uh, I took some of those questions uh, to an honest-to-God earthquake expert earlier this week, uh, Dr. Wei Sun-Li. He uh, works at the National Science and Technology Center for Disaster Reduction. Uh, And he told me that basically this incident really highlights the fact that uh, it's not just about the government response here. Uh, Residents and building owners also uh, need to do more as well.
3: I think the first problem is still the usage of the building. You know, in the Taiwanese practice, uh, most of the commercial units they always want to have open space at first floors. Such design always will easily to form a kind of we call it a weak story. Weak story means it cannot take sufficient shear sure force. So you see a lot of the failure this time actually. Most of the reason is weak story. That we say, a lot of design and config- configurations is not, are not correct. It will affect buildings'
0: earthquake performance.
1: Right, so that was Dr. Lee. And, uh, of course, kind of what he's getting at there is that was one of the big issues that was blamed for the wei collapse. It's believed that uh, some of the walls, some of the structures in the first story of the building were removed. Uh, it's not entirely clear, though... Uh, when, at what time, by whom uh, they were removed by. So uh, this question of blame, uh, that might be a little bit difficult to uh, assign. Uh, How far have we gotten with that, Michael?
0: Well, we are very much in the early stages of assigning blame, and one day we will see a report that says, you know, they removed this wall or this pillar, and then the next day somebody will say, well, that doesn't actually structurally change the the, the, the building and it's incredibly confusing and I was speaking with a, a lawyer friend of mine in Gaosheng that I've known for quite a while and uh, he he basically told me that we shouldn't be holding our breath to be able to actually identify a specific culprit or uh, one person or even a, a group of people who can be firmly held responsible for this because he says um, it's just a lot more complicated than we might think some people signed papers allowing certain uh, modifications to a building but they signed it just because the paperwork was in order and it was their job to sign it some people approved the paperwork some of these people have already passed away we have one guy who's changed his name five or six times and basically he said uh, if you look back at uh, disasters that have occurred over the past decades or so we we just haven't been really able to pin down a specific person legally because it's really, really hard. Maybe somebody else there have, with more legal knowledge than I can chime in.
2: I think, I think they will this time, Eric. I, I beg to differ there. I, I, think, I think some people are going to go to prison over this. If only go, harking back to the 1999 earthquake and, of course, the Dongxing building in Taipei that collapsed and people died in that building. And, of course, the contractor and the owner of the building did a runner, of course, to Canada. Yes. So, of course, they didn't get him. He wasn't held responsible for his company putting um, salad oil containers in supporting beams, etc., etc. So I think this time someone is going to go to prison, if not one person,
3: maybe two or three people. Well, part of the challenge uh, is finding direct evidence of somebody uh, engaging in behaviour that was illegal, whether it was somebody who owned the building, a contractor who removed a wall, as, as has been mentioned, City inspectors who were negligent in carrying out their inspection duties. And one of the problems with Taiwan law compared to other jurisdictions is not only is it hard to apportion blame, but also the penalties might seem lighter compared to other jurisdictions, whether it's the financial penalty or the prison penalty. And we know from past experience in Taiwan that very often when people are convicted in these cases, they do get to appeal and the appeals will go on for many, many years, and often the higher-level courts will reduce the penalties. And by the end of this process, uh, unfortunately, there, there really isn't anyone who goes to jail for significant amounts of time or pays large amounts of financial compensation. Uh, so we'll ha- ultimately we'll have to look to the government, and that's probably one of the reasons why the government rushes so quickly to offer large amounts of money to the victims, both from the city government level as well as the central government level.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's obviously an indictment of the entire uh former system of taiwan when they began building back in you know whenever they they first came over and just did not apply safety standards until i don't know when like uh, probably the the mid 90s before they started taking these things a little bit seriously and uh you know who knows how many other public works bridges buildings uh, other infrastructure that was not built uh, up to uh, standards that uh could be disasters in the making. So, unfortunately, we really do need to uh, get a handle on these uh, safety issues and safety standards.
3: Well, actually, this, this raises a really important issue, I think, which is uh, President-elect Tsai um, should be looking and thinking about appointing people to her government, her cabinet, uh, who do have appropriate level of infrastructure expertise, um, you know, whether it's the Minister of Transportation and Communications uh, which has a significant responsibility for infrastructure, ministry of the interior, etc. cetera. Um, but uh, you know, we can't just have career academics. Uh, we really need to have people in government who understand the issues who've been on both sides, who've been in government previously maybe, but have also been in the private sector building uh, as, as contractors and understand this side. But uh, given the scope of this disaster and the need to do proper inspections as you identified, I think now we 'll be looking for her to appoint somebody into her team who has this level of expertise and could help with not just the recovery in tainan but but prevention as well and, and we 've discussed many times the lack of a culture in Taiwan for safety and, and disaster prevention
1: yeah and let's uh, let 's stick on that point just as we wrap up this section. I mean the last thing to to look at is you know what are going to be the next steps and we 've heard a little bit about that already. Uh, We just heard from Michael a second ago. There's, of course, going to be lots of surveys going around uh, trying to determine which areas are at higher risk for this soil liquefaction that we've been hearing so much about. Also, uh, they're going to be looking for what buildings, what some of these older buildings that are also at risk for collapse, not quite at the same standards. Uh, of more modern buildings in Taiwan. Uh, some academic put the number at something like 50% of Taiwan's buildings that are over 30 years uh, old. So that's going to be quite a task. Uh, Gavin, what, what have you been hearing this week in terms of laws that need to be passed and proposals for next steps?
2: Well, Tsai Ing-wen, of course, came out this week and said she would like to check all buildings over the age of 19 years which is an awful lot of buildings. That's a lot of... Bit. 19 that's years enormous, is not that far back. Not, far, not that far back at all. When you think about the cost of actually checking every building in Taiwan that's over 19 years of age, that's a horrendously large amount of money. Yeah. yeah
0: what the- do you do if you determine that the building is unsound and it's a, you know, two. Power building with a thousand uh, residents in it. Do you tear it down? You know, it, it's. I don't actually understand what the point of the inspections are unless they have a concrete plan for action afterwards.
2: Yeah, that's another question. Again, you, you, not only the checkings are expensive themselves, but of course, what do you do? Wh- where do you put the people that have to move out, and who builds the new building? Yet more, one yet thing more expensive. That
0: made uh, a bit of sense was a suggestion from a civic group uh, a couple days back that uh, the. Uh, Tainan and Kaohsiung governments adopt the same policies that Nanto did after the uh, quake. In 2000, Nantou uh, banned the construction of large buildings along fault lines. And we know of at least two major fault lines in Tainan. There's at least a couple in Kaohsiung, and of course there's probably some undiscovered ones as well. So if we can start by at least banning construction of high-rises or at least or even uh, buildings above, like, you know, five or six stories right along fault lines then, I mean, that just makes sense, right?
1: All right. So some of the proposals there, some of the things to look forward to uh, as the response continues. I'm sure this is a a story that we're going to be sticking with for some time now. Uh, But that's where we're going to leave it for today, meaning that that's the last segment for our broadcast section. But now that we've just got you podcasters out there, we got... Our extra story for you guys, as we always do, and I don't even know too much about this one, so I'm just going to let Gavin set it up for us. What do you got for us, Gavin? I believe we have two extra stories today.
2: I've got a nice one, but mine's a, a bit serious. But apparently Ross has got another one about some foreign chap in Taiwan and Taipei. Was it Ross that robbed a convenience? I think store? we're throwing
1: Ross under the bus. I think dressed it was Michael. As, it was Michael d- who wanted. To do this.
2: <laughs> oh, sorry, it's Michael. Michael it's deflecting it. Tell us about the Marvel <laughs> comic character who robbed a Seven Eleven.
0: Well, uh, it's. Just a, a, a really bizarre story. Uh, all we know is that he is a Canadian national, 25 years old. They gave his surname as Diaz, but that's it. And he entered a convenience store in Nehu. Uh, I believe it was uh, on the 17th of February. Dressed up, they say, uh, as Ryan Reynolds' Deadpool character, a new movie that's out.
1: Except he uh, wasn't at all. he allegedly
0: tied the door of the bathroom as the the clerk went into the bathroom, tied up the door and tried to keep the clerk inside. And then you look at the surveillance camera from inside the thing, and he's searching underneath the the cash register. Uh, He doesn't seem to know what he's doing at all. He's a terrible robber. And uh, the tie that he made on the the bathroom door was easily broken through. The store clerk came out, called some people. They all came in. They tied him to a tree until the police arrived. And he turns out to be a 25-year-old Canadian English teacher in Taiwan. And he wanted to go see his girlfriend in Denmark over the Chinese New Year holiday, but he didn't have the money. So he thought, hey, I'll rob a convenience store. He managed to get 4,000 NT out of the cash register. That's $120, and that's not going to get you to Denmark. But uh, this is a first, or at least one of the first that I've heard of, of this type of uh, robbery being conducted by uh, an English teacher. It was bizarre.
2: He was an English teacher that thought he was a superhero.
0: Well, he was dressed as a superhero. He was uh, not.
1: He was not not dressed as a superhero. He had a red hoodie, and everybody in Taiwan (laughs) said... I guess the since the movie just came out, they made that connection. But nothing about him said Deadpool whatsoever. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That, 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 uh, it, there is actually no connection. You're right.
3: <laughs> Well, he's lucky he did this in, in Taiwan and not some other country where the clerk would have been packing heat. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> exactly. True, yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. So we just had to get a little bit of silliness in there. But
1: Gavin, you have a very serious a most, one. I've got for a, a, a us. more
2: serious, interesting story here. This concerns a team of researchers from the National Science Museum of Tokyo. Now that. There, you've heard of Th- Thor Heyerdahl and the Kontiki Expedition, of course, where they took the bamboo ra- or the, the grass raft across from South America to the islands in the Pacific to prove that people once upon a time could travel long distances without navigation on such vessels. And this group of chaps, or men and women probably, from... chaps. Tok- Chapettes, we'll call them for the sake of argument... They are, they are planning to take a, a grass or bamboo raft and sail it from Japan to Taiwan to prove that people could make such journeys
3: 38,000 years ago. Does this prove that um, not just the Senkakus, but Taiwan and islands further south are historically part of Japan?
2: No. Or, or the other way around? Because people from Taiwan might have gone there.
3: This Has anyone from Taiwan proposed going in that direction? I know this.
2: This is this. <laughs> and let me finish. The Japanese people planned to go from Taiwan to Japan. Oh. and possibly backwards as well, they are both it's ways. It's a funny
0: route for them to choose because the theory of how uh, uh, the islands of, of, of the Pacific were settled is that they came from China and then used Taiwan as kind of a jumping base, if I'm not mistaken. To go to Japan, this is what they
2: plan to do, to go from Japan, Taiwan to Japan.
1: So it's to prove that theory, that's what, that's what we're talking that about theory, here. Yeah.
2: But what's interesting about this, it might be from a museum, but this group of researchers have turned to crowdfunding to raise the money to do it crowdfunding their grass. And they're hoping to raise 175,000 US dollars to carry out the sea journey. But this is all well and good. They plan to do the big journey of course from Taiwan to Japan, but they say, "Oh, before we do that, next year in 2017, we plan to sail from the second largest island in the Okinawa prefecture to the westernmost inhabited island in Japan for a bit of practice." And that's only 65 kilometers.
0: That sounds like a good idea, though. A
2: bit of practice. They, they did say <laughs> they needed a bit of practice, because the a great line from the story was, the team eventually aimed to sail from Taiwan to Japan, but say they won't be attempting that voyage in
1: 2017, as it requires slightly more training. A little more training. I don't understand why you need $175,000 to put together a grass raft.
2: Well, in case they have a cigarette, it might burn. You'd be able to build another one, didn't you?
3: Ah, okay. Well, I, I,
2: how about
0: insurance?
3: <laughs> and a supply of sake.
0: <laughs> right, yeah.
3: all important things
1: for that ancient journey that uh populated the entire region all right well that is uh we got a two for today ever so lucky and they were both free so lucky listeners out there but uh we're going to have to round out the show please do join us again next time taiwan this week broadcasts every friday evening at 8:30 p.m. right here on icrt fm 100 you can also find an extended version of the show online at the icrt website on itunes And uh, we're posting now to SoundCloud, so if you search Keith ICRT, you can find it there as well. If you are listening through iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show. Let's us know what you're thinking. Helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Hey, good night. Ross Feingold, also in studio. Good night. And uh, thank you, Michael Smith, for joining us down in Kaohsiung.
0: Happy to be on the program.
1: Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week.